When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire only by granting you yours may I earn my release. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this, I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish, and you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? That's Tilda Swinton with Idris Elba in 3,000 Years of Longing, the ambitious new film from Mad Max Fury Road director George Miller, with Swinton as an accomplished narratologist and Elba as a djinn who offers her three wishes. I now know what a narratologist is, but I may need a little help with the rest of the film, Adam. Aladdin, this is not. We will together fulfill your wish, Josh. Our review of 3,000 Years of Longing, plus Barbara Stanwyck and Gary Cooper and Howard Hawks, Ball of Fire, ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. Sam, our producer, pointed this out, Josh, but we do have a nice bit of coincidence spotting with this week's show. Randomly turns out that these two films are being discussed together, 1941's Ball of Fire and George Miller's new one, 3,000 Years of Longing. In that one, we've got Idris Elba emerging from a bottle to help cure Tilda Swinton's academic of a loveless life. We'll go with that. And we've got Barbara Stanwyck pulling a similar trick on Gary Cooper in the Howard Hawks film. Of course, he doesn't pop out of a bottle. She just forces her way into his temple of higher learning. So things work out for a reason, it seems, Josh. She's awfully dazzling as well in those Edith head costumes, you know, as as dazzling as those bottles, I would say. Great point. Later in the show, we will get to Ball of Fire, the fifth film in our Summer of Stanwyck Marathon. It's got Stanwyck and Cooper, as we noted, but it's also written by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Howard Hawke's direction. Trust us, it's as good as it sounds. But first, Mad Max maestro George Miller throws a bit of a curveball in his filmography with 3,000 Years of Longing. My name is Alethea. My story is true. 
I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. George Miller bought the rights to 3,000 Years of Longing source material, A.S. Byatt's short story, The Djinn in the Nightingale's Eye, in the late 1990s, and alternated between working on it and 2015's Mad Max Fury Road for over a decade. Otherwise, I easily would have believed that Miller's latest wasn't just shot during COVID, but also conceived during it, the entire endeavor serving as a metaphor for escape. It's at this point that we may realize, if we haven't already, that all the film's tales have turned on images of captivity, concludes Bilga Abiri in his glowing vulture review. Concurrent to all that, a spiritual and emotional entrapment runs through the picture as well, from the sweet hypnosis of a story that seems to have no end to the idea of a love that cannot be given freely. Indeed, captivity, entrapment, confinement in various forms is, fittingly, a running theme throughout this fable of a djinn, or genie, released from a blown glass bottle bought in an Istanbul bazaar. The djinn, played by Idris Elba, recounts his exotic journey with its multiple romances and imprisonments to Tilda Swinton's Alethea Binney, who, as a woman obsessed with and devoted to the study of storytelling, is a captivated audience. While the djinn's narration, and thus almost the entire film, emanates from within Alethea's hotel room, and due to the pandemic, the movie was shot mostly in studios, it would be inaccurate to suggest that 3,000 Years doesn't have any of the grandeur of Fury Road, minus the unrelenting, intense action. The djinn has been some places and seen some things. From the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon to the 16th century rule of Suleiman the Magnificent, up to the mid-19th century, and Miller, expectedly, renders the expansive sweep of it all in lush, vivid colors and details. Yet I imagine some viewers may find it too stilted and stuck. As someone who, in your own way, Josh, has devoted his life to studying storytelling, were you as entranced as Alethea? Or did you find yourself in the theater wishing that someone, anyone, would free you from your anguish? <laughs> I wish I had a strong of... A response to this film as either of those opinions, Adam, that seems to be largely what's out there. I, you know, always avoid reading or listening to reviews in full, but I did see as this movie began to open uh, on Letterboxd, the star ratings scroll by and wow, I think Bilga Abiris were one of those, some just outrageously praiseworthy, you know, glowing, as you said, reviews, five stars on Letterboxd, and then saw a few more tepid responses and maybe one or two outright didn't seem to like it, basing again all on star ratings. So I'm going into this thinking, first of all, love that challenge. I don't know how I'm going to respond to this film because the response so far seems to be all over the place. And came out a little puzzled. Um, mostly, I would say, puzzled by the uh, enormous praise, how it could connect with someone that deeply. I guess 
the storytelling aspect you asked me about is the one that did resonate with me the most. This movie did grab me in the beginning because it was not only about storytelling in a meta way that intrigued me, but it seemed to have the verve, the filmmaking excitement about the possibility of telling stories as a movie. So this thing moves. We've got really ingenious little edits, nothing profound, but say a cut from like the planes, wheels coming out and landing on the tarmac as Elethea lands right to the wheels of her luggage cart running through the airport. Miller's camera is swerving all over the place in a way that felt really, to me, very expansive. I know there are many scenes set in a hotel room with just the two of them, but I thought this movie moved quickly in a lot of exciting directions. But the irony was, as these stories began to compound, as the film went on, we jumped from century to century. Instead of that excitement expanding for me, the air started to come out of this movie. And I'm trying to figure out why still. I I have a few preliminary thoughts. I have an idea about the directions the movie chose to go, and maybe I was hoping it might go. I would argue it drifts a little bit from that interest in storytelling. Even as it continues to tell more stories, the focus seems to turn towards uh, the central relationship of these two main characters. And I don't know if it was that where I lost the thread. Um, In the end, I I definitely appreciated the craft you've always alluded to. Uh, Miller working with cinematographer John Seal. There is some stunning imagery and tableaus we get. But I became less and less interested in this movie and started to wish it would wrap up near the end, which is something you never want. And as a matter of fact, thought it had ended and it tacked on something else after that Mm -hmm. that didn't really help for me. So I'm hoping you had a stronger reaction one way or the other, Adam, to help me figure out what I missed with this one. I don't know if I'll be of any help, but I definitely had a stronger reaction to it. I definitely had a more positive reaction to it. The great thing about good stories and good storytelling is that no matter what mood you are in or how tired you are or how distracted you are, you can get swept up in them. And I agree with you that the movie runs out of steam. We won't really get into that too much, probably, because I'm not sure we need to get into spoiler territory here. The more it focuses on that central relationship, I agree. Something is lacking that up until that point, the movie has in full. But I found myself more aligned with Althea taking this story in. I'm not in the Bilga Abiri camp. I'm also not in our friend Mariah Gates's camp, who on Letterboxd gave it two stars and just called it outrageously bad. I don't totally understand that reaction, and yet I do kind of understand where Mariah's coming from. For me, Sarah and I went to see this at 9.30 at night, the terrible 9.30 at night slot on a Saturday night. We've put the two little kids to bed We're pretty well drained and exhausted, but it was the only time I was going to be able to fit it in. I almost called it off at the last minute and just said, I don't know when I'll see it, but I'll figure out another time. This just isn't going to be good. And lo and behold, the story starts. And just like Alethea, I was along for the journey of this tale. And there's many reasons why. One of them is that the story has what any good story needs, and that's stakes. The core idea here was fascinating to me, Josh, that a djinn has to convince a woman to make three wishes or else he is stuck forever. But the woman he needs to elicit that from is someone who 
knows not only that happiness and fulfillment and most things we seek in life are predicated on narratives that we create for ourselves, she keenly understands how these narratives are constructed and function. So she's impervious. She's not susceptible to them in the way the usual person who throughout history has released him would be. And watching it, I both wanted the gin to get that release. I wanted him to win here. I believe that he is an empathetic, soulful being who, as he says at at least one point, is not trying to exploit her or manipulate or hurt her. And yet his existence requires that she comply. On the other side, I'm rooting for Althea. I don't want her to get played. I don't want her to give in. I don't want her to sacrifice herself and the life she's built for herself, flawed as it may be. And she allows those flaws, those cracks in the dam to show. I didn't want her to relinquish the authority and the power that she had either. And that push-pull of the conflict was compelling for me. Yeah, it is compelling. And I think that's what drew me in initially as well. But I guess I would argue that seems to fall by the wayside probably by the midpoint of the film. And it's not that it's jettisoned. It's that we get these sub-narratives, these stories of the Jin's previous experiences with other people throughout history who have come across his bottle and his struggle with them. Those are, you know, as you say, different stakes. So this movie definitely gives us more stakes. It piles stakes upon stakes within stakes and extra stakes. But for me, they weren't quite as compelling as that initial one that did grab you. Also, I feel like maybe two-thirds through the film, they throw those stakes out between the two of them. And that intellectual, maybe it's this, Adam, I, I feel like this turns from a intellectual gamesmanship experience between the two of them mm -hmm. into a romantic one. Let, let's, let's just say that without getting into too much detail. And for me, that's when the air came out. I think that's when that's what it was. I was not as invested in um, these two as a couple, even though I understand it reflects the Jin's experiences, some of his experiences in the past as well. He's had romantic entanglements with other humans. Um, it's part of his story. It makes sense. It's not a sharp veer out of nowhere, but it's definitely a different direction than where the movie had been taking us. And what I agree with you is incredibly compelling. This idea of a studier of stories being getting thrown multiple stories at her that are going to affect her own story and how she plays that out. I wonder if part of this is the performances too. Um, and, and maybe this is a, a way to shift to that. I'd love to hear a little bit more. It sounds like Elba definitely worked for you, how you thought Swinton worked, because I struggled a little bit with the characterization of Alethea as this um, person who is incredibly lonely and in denial about that loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, that seemed to be something the movie wanted her to be. I don't know if I ever entirely got that from the performance. Alethea seemed, you know, there's. I think there's an exchange between them about contentment. And the djinn can't believe that she could be content um, as this person who's, you know, has given much of her life in, to study right now. And she makes an argument back, no, I am. Uh, I'm not still, you know, suffering from this romantic relationship in my past that she details that is no longer uh, alive. 
I'm I'm content. Now maybe she's not 100% content, but I did believe her. I kind of I kind of bought yeah. it. And so I didn't I think see but don't you think the movie wanted us to see her as more lonely and desperate than she registered to me at least? I think the movie wants us to see that it's complex and that even for someone as sturdy in her belief in contentment as she is, that doesn't mean that there still aren't elements of need and loneliness. And that's how I read it. We agree on when the air does come out of the movie and why we just don't agree totally on when it occurs at what point in the film or to what extent it deflates the film, those stories and stakes you talked about. Yes, there are stakes within each one of those sub narratives, those tales that he tells. But for me, I still saw them working nicely and fitting nicely within the larger construct of him trying to get her to change her mind. He is telling her all of these stories so that she ultimately will succumb and that she will feel compelled to take an action. So I still saw those fitting together pretty nicely. Elbow works fine for me here. I can't recall any specific choices he made that either really wowed me or did anything to detract from the movie. I don't think there is the spark between those two characters that you need when the movie ultimately seems to demand it. But Swinton here is actually a big reason why the movie worked for me. Hmm. As the audience's surrogate, I think she embodies all of those conflicts and the nuances that we're talking about in a way that doesn't make it too simple, that doesn't make it binary. If anything, if we see it on sort of a sliding scale, I see her way more as actually content. And there's just that hint of, but maybe there's something more. Maybe there is something she's missing. And the fact that she's open to that is something that I think makes her character interesting. She's largely a reactor here, and yeah. that's not great for most performers, but few performers do more with less than Tilda Swinton. I felt like I was reading four notes at once in every look or sigh or gesture. And to get in a little more to what you're arguing, Josh, despite the way she portrays herself within her own story, that's part of it too. She sets herself up within this fairy tale construct is being more rigid and unmoving. And she almost protests too much about how happy she is. You see those characteristics and you believe them, but I do think she subtly reveals a lot more. She reveals some vulnerability. She reveals some need. And more than anything, Swinton just exudes curiosity, intellectual and emotional curiosity and investment in the story she's hearing. The more she feels it the more she wants to know, the more I did. And the fact that he's this magical genie and obviously a powerful entity and she's just immortal, but she also has power in this situation and authority in this situation in that, as I said, she's more or less impervious to what he's peddling. That, that equality between them that Swinton especially brought forth is one of the things that carried those stakes through. Yeah, that's that's that intellectual arguing mm -hmm. that they get into. And the intelligence absolutely, you know, pops from her performance. I don't think that Swinton could give a performance where that wasn't happening to some degree. But you're right. It's incredibly reactive. And I found myself thinking that, um, 
you know, Swinton is someone, it was in Memoria, I think, where a very quiet and still movie where it struck me that she really is this master of cinematic stillness mm-hmm. as a performer. That's why she was such a great match for that film. But here it verged a little bit too much on the inert. Uh, as we get into those hotel room scenes in particular, she has the vivacity at the beginning. And maybe here's where I, why I see Alethea as being more content, though, yes, not perfect, because she's so excited to meet her colleagues at this conference when she's giving her lecture. She's so passionate. And you just see that this is where this woman finds her, her meaning and her contentment. And then as she's required to be a bit more reactive, listening to the Jin stories, um, it kind of, that excitement drains out of the performance as well. I, I found Elba to be you know, interesting, but still elusive, even though this is in some way his ultimate story, mm-hmm. just the way he's drifting through the ages here and and becoming, I mean, this is what a challenging project to take on. Because as we're talking about it, I think we're seeing the difficulties, some of which the filmmakers met and some of which they didn't. But as the Jin starts telling these stories of his past, then he becomes the reactive one, right? In so many of those stories, he's he's at the whims of these humans mm-hmm. and watching the choices they make. And so there's something impersonal about that too, and that puts him in that seat of being a watcher. So they both take turns playing the audience surrogates, and maybe that's part of the problem too, is neither of them really grabs the movie by the mm-hmm. throat and says, this is this is my story and, and this is what I want you to be compelled by. I, I also thought of, you know, Swinton in another film, Only Lovers Left Alive, the Jim Jarmusch picture mm-hmm. with with uh, Tom Hiddleston, somewhat similar in that, you know, two people who are considering the past. Um, there are many scenes of them talking together and just being still together and asking myself why she had sort of that transfixing stillness in a sort of similar role there that she doesn't quite have here. So, yeah, I don't I don't know that I ever want to be caught saying that I've seen a bad Tilda Swinton performance, but she was definitely one of the reasons I was so excited about this. And and um, it did leave me wanting a little bit in that area. I think your comparison of the two characters and their function in the film is fair. And I understand how you see it, to use your word, as a problem. For me, that symmetry between them as trapped watchers as trapped observers just added to and enhanced the narrative so the performances or at least swinton's performance is key here the stakes and the entire conceit of the story fundamentally work for me but the thing that really moved me about the film it didn't move me in an emotional way but i think alluding to movement here is appropriate for what i'm going to say and when talking about george miller the trick of this movie, and this is something we reference a lot with Michael Phillips, the idea of getting into a rhythm with a movie or not. And I love that you referred to him in our tease there off the top as a maestro. Rhythm is essential when talking about Miller. 3,000 Years certainly isn't the intricate symphony of chaos that Fury Road was, but there's an underlying musicality that glides it along. And I found that surprising because he isn't on this grand scale that he was with Fury Road. But the way he, in the story, dart in and out of time and space, across centuries, across lands, the camera movement itself, it's often in motion from sweeping shots 
to more conventional tracking shots to also more limited movement within space. But the camera never really feels planted as we're cutting between these different locales, including the story that the gin is telling and the hotel room itself. The match cuts in particular here, Josh, the use of match cutting. And it's not constant, but there are many throughout the film, some very obvious and deliberate and some deliberate but more subtle, where the spaces and these characters are united as we're transitioning across all of this time and space by the cuts themselves, by the matching of an action in one scene and the action in the next. They flow into each other. You mentioned the opening scene, the arrival. I think everything about that arrival in Istanbul and the use of sound itself was very musical. But another way you get that flow also lies in the performances, in the way Elba and Swinton intone these lines. I want to play a clip. It's the only clip other than the trailer that is available online, but it perfectly illustrates my point, or at least, Josh, I like to think it does. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish. And you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means enlightenment. Then you are a pious fool. If I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. Don't goad me. I'm not going to go back to sophomore year of college here as an English major and actually give you the exact meter that's on display here. But if I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. We're in iambic pentameter territory here. And Swinton and Elba, they don't really enunciate each word. They carry their breath across all of these phrases. It is almost like they're singing. And I felt it from the very beginning of the film. I couldn't articulate it that way until I watched this scene again and really broke it down. But I knew that all of these forces were coming together, not just the camera movement and the editing, not just the expanse of the storytelling itself, but something about the musicality of the voices even was keeping this whole thing afloat for me. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that flow, as you described it, more in the filmmaking than the performances. But as you were talking, it actually reminded me of a movie from earlier this year, Elvis, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, and the way we're carried through the ages of Elvis's career with a similar rhythm, a similar fluency that is all in the filmmaking. Now, it's Luhrmann, so imagine cranking up you mm -hmm. know, things even more intense than they were in Mad Max Fury Road because he's just operating at that sort of cinematic high, which is exactly why some people don't like him. Uh, but there's definitely a similar sense of rhythm to the filmmaking, which we do have here, as I said, which we especially have in the beginning for me. And that's one of the things I liked about it. Another film that I did want to mention, just because I know it has a handful of supporters, um, but not enough people do know about it, but it made me came to mind for me, I should say, while watching 3,000 Years, and that is The Fall, the Tarsen Singh yeah. film from 2008. I can't claim to I be think its, it's six. Is it six? Okay. I can't claim to be its biggest fan because the next picture shows Tasha Robinson frequently references how much she loves it. Um, but it is also a story about storytellers. In mm -hmm. this case, it's a young girl in a hospital. This is 1915 LA who meets an injured movie stuntman played by Lee Pace. And he just tells her these fantastical stories. So it's similarly structured. 
Um, again, I don't mean to bring this up as a counter to something like 3,000 Years of Longing, because I, I do overall like the Miller film. But if you like this one, and especially the visual lushness and the craft in 3,000 Years, you absolutely have to see the fall and the production design, the real-world locations across the globe that Singh used to tell these stories. I would love to revisit this film, I've long wanted to revisit it, but see kind of what the gap is for me between the two of them, because I had such different responses to them. Um, you know, as much as I admire the visuals, there is a fair amount of CGI in 3000 years that um, some of it is stronger than others. I think um, I liked better again, those tableaus, the production design, heavy tableaus in the past. I think those are more visually effective. And going back to the fall, that's what I remember standing out is just these location shoots of incredible costuming and production design all to tell a story within uh, a story that was visually arresting itself so if you haven't seen the fall yet here's a here's a good reason to finally check it out agreed if you've seen that film and appreciate it as we both do and as many people do that connection is clear or it's very difficult to watch this film and not think about that film i think at its best that film soars in a way this film doesn't ever quite get to and i think some of that might be the limitations of its production, Josh, in terms of not being able to utilize some of those real world spaces, perhaps like Tarsum was able to. 3000 Years of Longing is currently playing in wide release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. From Tilda Swinton's Professor of Narratology to Gary Cooper's Professor of English, Ball of Fire is next. Plus, we'll play a round of Massacre Theater. Stay with us. But he did win in Rocky too. Lord, baby, how many times I got to tell you get past the first movie? That was all set up. Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall in the trailer for the new comedy Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which opens in theaters and on Peacock this weekend. Brown and Hall play Lee Curtis and Trinity Childs, church leaders attempting to build back their congregation after a massive scandal. The film is the feature debut of director Adama Ibo, based on her earlier short film of the same name. I've been curious about this film since I first heard of it, Josh, really because of those two stars. Brown and Hall is the film worthy of their talents. You've had a chance to see it. I have not yet. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're both the reason to check out Honk for Jesus. Absolutely. I remember when it was playing at Sundance, uh, it seemed like most of the praise was for them, and that's accurate. I do like the film overall, but they are the highlights. If there's, It's interesting because this is really the Regina Hall character's story, the wife, Trinity, but and she's good. Hall is very good. She's very funny, as you might expect, but also, you know, allows us to see the peaks of the inner turmoil this woman is experiencing, even though she has to keep it behind this facade, this face, this public face. But Sterling K. Brown is so incredible that he ironically almost um, 
takes the movie hostage. And it's ironic because that's the story is how this woman is somewhat trapped by this public man as well because of his charisma, also because of his faults. And Brown just captures that. He's so electric as this problematic pastor. Um, He's fierce and he's fragile at the same time. This is not a character. There is a lot of broad comedy in this, but it also um, really goes into some dark drama. And Brown hits all of those notes. Um, The sermons he gives, somehow he captures that you know this guy believes a little of it because he's scared while he's giving this sermon. Um, And Brown manages to to give us that sense. Um, There's a great scene where he's he's practicing a comeback sermon outside and a, a parolee who's picking up trash nearby comes up to him and tells him that one of his earlier sermons saved his life, turned his life around, and he doesn't believe these news reports about him. And the way Brown physically responds as Lee Curtis, he's, you can see it's pumping up his ego to hear this, but he also deflates a little bit because he knows in his heart, those news reports are true. Like his sins are true. And so all of that is going on in, in this really incredible performance that is by far the highlight of the film, even though Hall is quite good as well. One of the things I will say quickly that, that works a little bit against it, or at least did for me is it's framed as a mockumentary at the beginning and mostly throughout, but does break away from that on occasion. So we'll get private moments with the couple where there isn't a camera crew. Um, And I found that a little jarring and a little also undercutting of keeping the focus on Trinity and her story. So that's one thing that didn't quite work with me. Again, others might, you know, appreciate that sort of dexterity and see it as a plus. Um, But yeah, I would encourage people to check it out for Brown particular, for Hall as well. And they're great together too. Their scenes together are really strong as well. Hawk for Jesus is in theaters now. And again, you can catch it on Peacock as well. With Labor Day weekend upon us, we are going to take a little break. And in two weeks, we'll come back with the final film in our Summer of Stanwyck Marathon. It's Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. We will also have our Stanwyck Marathon Awards. And as always, we turn to you, our creative, intrepid listeners, to give us the appropriate name for this marathon. Sam's throwing out one that is obviously taken right from the movie we're going to talk about here in a little bit, The Sugar Pusses, which is a great name (laughs) and fun to say, Josh. I don't know if it's the winner. We need some contenders here from our audience. I mean, there's a lot of good options from the slang that is in ball of fire isn't doesn't like uli drooly come up at one point i mean the uli the hoi toy toys yeah. let's call it the hoi toy toys there's there's a lot to pick from in that film but maybe something from one of our earlier movies will strike a chord with listeners too full marathon details and past reviews are at filmspotting.net slash marathons i know i've alluded to this a couple of times and at some point i need to put on my film spotting historian hat and actually document this Double Indemnity is going to be one of a very small handful of movies. It could be two. It could be three. It could be five. That's the thing. I can't trace it exactly. One of only a few movies that has been discussed twice on the show and been discussed as part of a marathon twice. The Lady Eve, another Stanwyck movie, coincidentally, was part of an earlier screwball comedy marathon that Sam and I did at one point. So Stanwyck, so great that she needs to be revisited multiple times here on Film Spotting, and I don't think anyone will argue with that. We will also have some other element on the show besides 
that double indemnity review, we don't know what it is yet. There are some promising titles coming out over the next couple of weeks, Josh. Movies that maybe I'm not entirely convinced necessitate an entire full review, but there's at least three or four I'm curious to see. And maybe we'll talk about some of those. There's also some good fodder for top five topics. Check our episodes page at filmspotting.net once we finalize that. We will also have results from the current film spotting poll asking you what your most anticipated film of the fall movie season is. We consider the fall movie season basically Labor Day up to Thanksgiving. We did our fall movie preview, our top five questions about the fall last week on the show. Fun episode. And we really gave you just four options, Josh, in this poll. Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Andrew Dominic's Blonde, that one stars Ana de Armas as Marilyn Monroe, Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darlene, and Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. We did offer the option of other, and I understand so far results seem to be pretty close, about evenly split among the four titles that we just listed. As much of a barn burner as we've ever had in a film spotting poll question, four titles, all separated by 3%. So all four movies falling somewhere between 20% of the vote and 23% of the vote. An audience divided, Josh. We will see how it officially comes out in a couple weeks here on the show. If you haven't voted yet, you can do that and leave a comment in the poll at filmspotting.net. We also wanted to mention that after a summer hiatus, our monthly virtual pub-style trivia game, Trivia Spotting, returns this month. It's Trivia Spotting 22. And it takes place on Friday, September 16th in the evening, 7.30 p.m. You do need to give up a couple hours of your night, but trust us, it's worth it. Thomas Todd, longtime listener and family member and professional quiz master, keeps it all flowing nicely. And new element this time, Josh, we've decided to allow our family members, our patrons, early access and a discount on tickets, but we're opening it up to everybody out there in the film spotting listening audience. So if you've ever wanted to play movie trivia, or maybe you're a little bit afraid of movie trivia, but you wouldn't mind just spending a couple hours hanging out with me, Josh, Sam, Michael Phillips, other special guests like that, and other amazing listeners, it really doesn't matter how much movie trivia you know. Trust me, I say that from personal experience. You should join us. It's a good time. Trivia spotting tickets and info at filmspotting.net slash events. Yeah, should be fun. Hope to see some new faces this time around with uh, tickets being available to everyone. And is it true, Adam, we're really not doing a show next week so that you can do some rehearsal trivia trials and, uh, you know, practice? I need all the practice I can get. We should plug as well, speaking of our family members and Patreon, this month's bonus show. Part of your benefits as a film spotting family member, it's not just discounts and early access to things. You also get a monthly bonus show. And Josh, you had a great idea to do something a little bit off the beaten path for film spotting. And that was concert spotting, music spotting. We would reflect on our top five all-time favorite concerts we attended. So far, the comments suggest it might be our best bonus content yet. Yeah, people seem to be enjoying it. The question I have for you in the wake of that, Adam, is there one band, you know, more nostalgia for me, I think, my list than you. You had more recent picks. But is there one band after we talked about that 
those concerts that has come back into your rotation where you're listening to their music again more than you had been before we started talking? Because I, I definitely um, Motley Crue. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that was one of your picks, right? Warrant, Warrant, Josh. <laughs> no. Motley Crue and Warrant came up in an honorable mention, so I thought maybe you did a deep dive. No, heaven forbid Spotify should ever get a hint of such <laughs> bands on my account and send me those suggestions. For me, it's been Crowded House. A little more Crowded House than I've been listening to probably in the past 15 years. So that's mm-hmm. been fun. How about you? Yeah. Similarly, I decided to give Crowded House a try. We referenced... Something So Strong, which is a great song. We referenced Don't Dream, It's Over. You talked about Weather With You. That was a song I admitted I had never heard before, so I've been checking that out on Spotify. One of my honorable mentions was seeing Liz Fair at the Vic back in 1998 on the Polyester Bride Tour, and that was just a good excuse to start listening to a little bit more Liz Fair. The yeah, other one, good one came from you, Josh, when you were talking about your Pitchfork experience and Sam, our producer, who is a more committed audiophile, I guess, a true music connoisseur, I would say more so than either of us. He loves one of the bands that you talked about that is unknown to me, and that's Beach Bunny. Yeah. So Did you give him a I've listen? Been, I've been giving Beach Bunny a listen, and I know what all the fuss is about. Nice. Yeah, I've I've um, been doing that even more than before since talking about him, so glad you checked him out. And if you want to check out our top five concerts, you can do that at patreon.com slash filmspotting. All right, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Michael Phillips and I massacred this scene. Do you or do you not love me? Oh, Elaine. Elaine, how could you say such a thing? Darling, of course I love you. Do you? Yes, yeah, darling. Hey, was that why oh, you've been darling. treating me the way you have? Oh, Elaine. Elaine, been... Elaine. Darling, I love you so much, I can't go through with our marriage. Have you suddenly gone crazy? No, no, I don't think so. It's only a matter of time. Look, look, darling. You wouldn't want to have children with three heads, would you? I mean, you wouldn't want to set up housekeeping in a padded cell. Oh, it'd be bad. What are you talking about? Oh, I don't quite know, Elaine. Look, I probably should have told you this before, but you see... Well, insanity runs in my family. It practically gallops. That was Cary Grant with Priscilla Lane in 1944's Arsenic and Old Lace, written by Julius and Philip Epstein based on their play of the same name, directed by Frank Capra. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was joined by the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. Michael and I discussed the fourth film in our Barbara Stanwyck Marathon, 1941's Meet John Doe. So why that scene from Arsenic and Old Lace? Hank Worster in Fort Benning, Georgia says, can't be anything but arsenic and old lace. I honestly thought Michael Phillips was doing his best Burt Lancaster impression, so I was doing my best to think along those lines. But insanity runs in my family. It practically gallops, just gave it away. Obviously, it's another Frank Capra movie to go with the review of Meet John Doe. The only other connection I could see is that I got Gary Cooper and Cary Grant confused up until I was in college and started watching older movies on my own and not just whatever was on TCM when I was at my dad's house. I don't think Hank alone in that confusion. <laughs> no. We also heard from Ariel Rosine from Waukesha, Wisconsin. 
Don't worry, Michael. Cary Grant himself would side with your opinion of the film as he considered this one of the weakest of his career. The obvious connection for this episode is that Arsenic and Old Lace and Meet John Doe were directed by Frank Capra. A connection I can make is that Arsenic and Old Lace centers around hidden bodies in the cellar and bodies, bodies, bodies. Need I say more? And yes, I did review along with Mariah Gates' Bodies, Bodies, Bodies on that episode as well. Now, Adam, were you heartened to see the number of submissions we got? Because you expressed a little suspicion that Arsenic and Old Lace would just be too old, too unknown. No one would bother to enter. I dare say we got a fair amount of entries. I felt good about that. I used to like to stump people a bit more with Massacre Theater, and at some point I decided, what's the point in doing a contest and engaging with your audience if you're not going to engage your audience? I really did think we might get about three entries for Arsenic and Old Lace. I underestimated our audience. I think it was that line, too. I saw this a lot in the entries. Hank mentioned it. That's such a good quip, screwball comedy all-time line about insanity running in the family. It practically gallops that uh-huh. rejoinder. I think a lot of people immediately placed it from that. I think so. Why don't you reach into that brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner? Our winner is Jeff Clark from Carborough, North Carolina. Congratulations, Jeff. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. Give us your T-shirt size. Give us your address, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting T-shirt. With the tattoo so simple. Would the detours are simple? Would the detours are simple? Would the detours are simple? My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said it. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. One I do think is going to test our chemistry a little bit, especially since it is Massacre Theater, and that means we never rehearse. No, we just watched the scene. That was the extent of our rehearsal. This is, I mean, it's not exactly screwball comedy, but it's a lot of back and forth repartee Mm -hmm. in a way. Yes. The sort of stuff that I imagine needs rehearsal, but we're going to give it a try. It requires us to actually listen to each other. (laughs) That'll be interesting. That might be a struggle. Also a struggle. You've got one performer here who is... Often, and especially in this scene, really high energy. I'm lucky I'm not playing it. I am not caffeinated enough yet in the day to play this character. And then you've got the other performer who is way more low-key, but is always a bit busy. Ooh, that's a good way to describe it. Okay, I can't wait to see what you do with that. (laughs) Same here, Josh. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. John, John. Huh. You are my favorite photographer. Oh, you are. I I only want you to shoot me. It's true. Oh Uh, Oh my God. I have the worst BO right now. I'm so sorry. Uh, Listen, let's let's all go out for a drink sometime. Yeah. 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 No, call me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Listen, I'm under Evelyn Waugh. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. 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 Arigato. Arigato. Yeah. Yeah. Mushy, mushy me. Oh, I screwed up. Sorry. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah, yeah. Mushy, mushy. And scene. <laughs> scene. You should have left the third mushy in. I, I liked oh, it. Maybe. Maybe I should have. If you know what film we just really massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. It's really hard to fake laugh. The deadline is Monday, <laughs> September 19th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I'll show you to my room. Yes, we are. We'll go. I know where my own room is, thank you, without any help from my you. Room, my I room. Room. 
I'll find her, don't bother. Just rough out the directions. The top of the stairs and the third door on the left. Gentlemen, just a moment, please. Gentlemen, this is all highly irregular. What if this should come to the attention of the Foundation? And what about Miss Bragg tomorrow? What are you talking about? This is research, isn't it? Yes. Certainly. Who is that guy learned so much from watching an apple drop? Isaac Newton. 1642-1727, That's Barbara Stanwyck with Gary Cooper and a few others in 1941's Ball of Fire. It's the fifth of six films in our Summer of Stanwyck Marathon, directed by Howard Hawks. Think about this lineup, written by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, based on a story by Thomas Monroe, I think co originated by Monroe and Wilder, also very loosely based. And this is legit on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Josh. Yeah, I can see that. I, I like how the professors here, they all do kind of move in a, gro- in a group together. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe there's a beard or two. Here is the plot. Cooper and seven fellow buttoned up bachelor academics are busy assembling a comprehensive encyclopedia encompassing all human knowledge. It's a project that has had them cooped up in a Manhattan brownstone for several years. Cooper's area of study, the English language, forces him out into the world for his article on slang. That's where he bumps into Stanwick's worldly showgirl, Sugarpuss O'Shea. Some convoluted plotting involving Stanwick's boyfriend, Dana Andrews' mob boss, Joe Lilac, forces Stanwick to hide out with Cooper and his monastic cohorts. Hijinks and an unexpected romance ensue. Now, Adam, the last time we discussed a Stanwyck film together, it was the marathon's other screwball title, Preston Sturgis, The Lady Eve. Do you possibly like Ball of Fire even more? I do like Ball of Fire even more, and I liked The Lady Eve quite a bit on our revisit. And it's embarrassing, truly, that I've never seen Ball of Fire. Not that it's necessarily thought of as one of Hawk's greatest films. There's a lot of titles. We'll get to some of them that probably outweigh it, but... As someone who once co-taught a class on Howard Hawks, there's really no excuse for never getting to this film. And it's a big reason why I wanted to do this Stanwyck Marathon. There was definitely no disappointment here. And I was thinking about it a little bit in terms, Josh, and maybe it's because of something you tweeted that I saw where, and I'm sure you'll get into this, you said, yeah, it's got all of these things going for it, but don't forget about Gary Cooper, I think is what you said. Yeah, I, well, actually, I lumped I lumped Cooper in with the luminaries. Um, I wanted to make sure people kept an eye out for those costumes I mentioned earlier okay. by Edith Head. That's right. That's right. I apologize. It was Edith Head. And that's a great call as well. I feel like this is a sort of murderer's row, almost like when we discussed The Godfather and we were saying, okay, how do you power rank the elements at play here? Coppola's direction, Gordon Willis's cinematography. Right. Pacino, Cazale, you know, Duval, Khan, all these performances, Brando, of course, as well. It's similar in that I don't want to single any one out, but this is maybe the first time in this marathon that without taking a back seat to anybody, Stanwick isn't the driving force or the thing that is the most compelling aspect of the film. This is really all of these different talents, amazing talents coming together and that synergy between them to produce something I really do think is pretty special as far as screwball comedies go. So you've got someone like Howard Hawks, usually 
an understated director, not someone who's ostentatious, isn't drawing a lot of attention to himself. He's a guy who knows where to put the camera, knows how to serve the story, understands the structure of drama, and knows how to harness those talents, the writing and the acting, to get something that is great. You've got Stanwyck being the incredible Barbara Stanwyck. Gary Cooper was a little bit of a revelation here for me comedically, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But I can't help but be so drawn to the writing here of Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. And I'm coming from the perspective of someone who is a huge Wilder fan. We're going to get to my favorite Wilder film and one of my all-time favorite films in a couple of weeks with Double Indemnity. So I love that this is setting us up perfectly for that. But to have two people like Wilder and Brackett, amazing screenwriters, amazing dramatists, writing a screenplay that is about language, that is fundamentally about language and loving language and curiosity about language. And the way they mine that for humor is maybe the most spectacular aspect of Ball of Fire for me. They are having such fun with that whole slang section where Cooper goes out into the real world and is just eavesdropping on people and, and amazed at what he hears and writing it down. And I agree. I think Cooper is great here. A bit of a revelation to me as well, though. I liked him and his comic contributions in Meet John Doe. Previously, I haven't had a ton of experience with Cooper. Obviously, know him in High Noon. And mm -hmm. I think is doing something very different here. We talked about, I know for me at least, in our Joseph von Sternberg, Marlena Dietrich marathon, where he was paired opposite Dietrich in Morocco. For me, the chemistry didn't quite work there. So seeing Cooper here particularly hit those romantic beats with Sandwick when they eventually need to, while still being funny. I don't know if I ever bought him as this academic stiff, you know, he's just, he's just too of a, too compelling of a screen presence to be thought of as like a, a wallflower bookworm. Um, but other than that, I think he was just a ton of fun in this as is Stanwyck, as is the language you mentioned, you know, when you look at it as a Hawks effort, um, I probably would rank something like, especially his screwball romantic comedy, something like His Girl Friday or even Gentlemen Prefer Blondes higher. I would probably rank The Lady Eve higher than this, but I loved Ball of Fire. Um, if there's a reason it, it's not on the level of Lady Eve, it's just that it does take a while to get going. It's even for a screwball comedy. This is a pretty screwy setup. and It takes a while to put all those pieces in place. But once it just gets going. It just flies. And everyone is so delightful. As you said, all of the elements do come together. And it's this ridiculous situation that you buy as much as you need to, and you don't mind watching it get more ridiculous as it goes. Have we even mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned in the Murderer's Row, Greg Toland, cinematographer from Citizen Kane, obviously. You know, you're right. This is who's doing the cinematography. And mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anything ostentatious in terms of the visuals here, but here we can maybe get into details. He does absolutely make that scene sing. And so does Stanwyck when she and Cooper, Cooper's basically complaining, right? You're distracting us from our study. And he starts describing how her hair, when the sunlight hits it, it just keeps him, he can't focus anymore. And what does she do? They're in the library. Stanwyck slowly starts backing as he's talking towards the window to allow the light coming through to just 
you know, hit her head beautifully. Tolan nails that without pushing it too far. And that's an example of what you're talking about, right, Adam? All the the writing. Everybody together. Thinking of that setup to move the romance along. Cooper's performance. Stanwick's wiles to make that move, which we've seen before in films. And then, yeah, Tolan just lighting it as it absolutely needs to be lit. It's it's like one of those perfect scenes. It is for all the reasons you said. And maybe it was Tolan's idea. Maybe it was in the script. You would believe that Billy Wilder, as the filmmaker that he was, might have even kind of written that in with an expectation. But you would also believe that maybe Hawks staged that entire scene that way and blocked it in that fashion. And I say that especially because not only is Howard Hawks such a good director, but there are other aspects of the direction in the screenplay that merge together here in a really fun way. And that is they love to play with. I say they because I'm thinking of Wilder and Brackett and Hawks together. They love to play with the idea of size throughout this film. Height is something that matters. And Yes, I am looking ahead a little bit to double indemnity as well. That's why I think it might lie to some extent with Wilder. But you look at these two performers and Stanwyck, though not in stature, of course, demure or taking a secondary stance to anybody in a scene ever. She is so much smaller than Gary Cooper, right? That's one of the things he has going for him is that movie star frame. And throughout that scene even, and so many other scenes, it's all about, as a lot of great screwball comedy scenes are, it's all about the power dynamic. It's about someone getting the upper hand, someone maybe trying to manipulate someone in the scene to get what they want. And the way Hawks plays with the blocking in terms of people sitting and standing or having a height advantage over someone in a moment. Sometimes it's because that person has the superiority in the scene. And sometimes it's very clear that they're taking that stance because they actually are inferior and there's something undercutting all of that. And they're trying to overcompensate for it. And it comes together, Josh, even in some notable ways in the screenplay, for example, the ring, the key moment with the ring, which is an epiphany for the Sugar Puss character. She has Joe, the gangster, Dana Andrews, right? She has his huge ring and she has the little ring from Gary Cooper's Professor Potts. And seeing those on her hand, cutting to that hand and looking at the size differential, she has to make a decision about what is more important to her in life. Is it something that feels real and genuine or is it something that maybe is more exciting, more thrilling, something you can show off more, something that here, and I think this is so key, and this is the kind of thematic elements that Wilder and Brackett play with so well, is it a case where the ring itself is so much more substantial? And she's, of course, drawn to that as a woman, as she says a couple times, who was raised in a pretty scrappy situation or had a tough upbringing. She's got that ring. And the weight of it is real, but she knows that the man who put it there isn't doing it for real reasons. Or she's got this tiny little thing that is barely something you even notice on her finger, but she knows it's being placed there for genuine reasons. And making that choice, we'll go back to stakes, making that choice is what this movie's all about. And I think there's, there's a weight to that, even as it's mostly 
of course, a screwball comedy. There's a dramatic heft to that that carries this movie along. Well, this, there's a great bit regarding the size thing you're talking about. I, I don't think you mentioned it with the books, right? When she kisses them, she's got a pile yes. of the yeah. books. So that's that's just another little well, riff on that. And how about, Josh, at the end, one of the key moments in the climax is the reveal, the understanding that he who sits highest topples. They're able to take down one of the gangsters because he is in a precarious position where he's perched and they know that they can literally take the rug out from under him. So that idea of height is something that really does play throughout the entire movie. And it's in all of those aspects of the conversation scenes between characters that could have maybe been played just very boring as sitting across from each other or standing across from each other and subtly Hawks does some great things with him. You mentioned dramatic weight. And what about the lovely moment at the roadhouse where all the professors are gathered and this is they're sharing reminiscences. And I think it's Professor Oddly who talks about his late wife. I think it begins with the professor singing Sweet Genevieve. I, I saw yeah. this a couple of weeks ago now. So um, and I think it's Professor Oddly who mentions that uh, it reminds him of his late wife and just asks them, please sing it again. Yeah. And he leaves the room. It concludes with the song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah OK. And, and it's just. Again, a, a supporting character, uh, not part of the main narrative at all, but just this lovely, serious, sweet, bittersweet moment that uh, works incredibly well and just adds a layer of emotional heft, a layer of meaning to the movie that counters the lightweightness uh, that we were there for. We're mostly there for, right? Uh, Professor Oddly, I should say, played by Richard Hayden. And I just love that scene. Uh, that's it. Mm -hmm. Please sing it all. Genevieve. Does anyone else know it? Genevieve. The days may come, the days may go, but still the hand of Yeah, it's fantastic. And it stands out. It's a sad scene in this film. But again, adding, as you said, some dramatic and emotional heft to the proceedings. We could go on and on going back to my first point about the language. I'm not going to go through every line of this film that struck me because it would take its own 30 or 40 minute review just going through them and how great they are delivered, how deftly they're delivered. But one of my favorite lines in the movie, Josh, and I don't remember the exact context. I was trying to find the quote here just before we started taping, but I think it's a moment when Gary Cooper is kind of sending her on her way or is admonishing her. It's a serious moment or a more serious moment. And he quotes something and he says, and I quote, and then Stanwick says, unquote, I suppose. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and it is a brilliant, scrappy, witty, clever rejoinder that you would expect from screwball comedies, that you would expect certainly from Sugarpuss, the character. But even the line itself and the words, unquote, I suppose, putting the quotes at the end of this statement gives it this sense of finality that she's that she's taking in what he's saying and accepting the terms of it. I love that moment. But then going back to Cooper, how about the skill it takes, honestly, 
to deliver lines that sometimes have you saying things like sugar puss a lot, you know, <laughs> saying it with a straight face harder than you think. And he does it really well. My favorite line, maybe from Cooper in the film is when he's a little delirious after a smooch session with Stanwick and Mrs. Bragg, the woman comes to the door who is trying to kick her out of there and get the men back in their places. And he says, it's all yours, Crabapple Annie. And the way he says that is perfect. But of course, that's also been set up by earlier scenes. Great screenwriting set up in earlier scenes what Crabapple Annie means so that we as an audience know what he is really suggesting when he drops that on her. And yeah, I was just surprised by Cooper because even though I'm sure I've seen him in some other less serious roles, I think of Cooper and I think about Sergeant York from Hawks. I think about High Noon. And the way here he does play clueless and awkward surprised me. You said that it's hard for him to really come off as a wallflower bookworm because he's Gary Cooper and he's so magnetic. I actually think, or my feeling watching it was, that would be easier for someone with the presence of Gary Cooper. Someone I don't think of as playing a quote-unquote character all that much to be that character stiff a little boring than playing someone who's also a little silly at times and the way cooper managed to do that without it ever feeling like he was putting on an affect is what worked for me here yeah he's he's a straight man in a lot of the scenes but not always and he's equally adept at those times where he's the one who has to deliver the punchlines. i'll throw out a quick favorite line of my own and it's another stanwick one um when he says at one point that he wants to clarify their relationship you know half a beat and she says have we got one of those <laughs> it's just like you know a power play that's incredibly funny and i would be remiss if i didn't note fantastic mr fox adorer that I Am, the Wes Anderson stop-motion film, this is where Mr. Fox's little tongue click comes from. It's it's what Sugar Puss is doing all the time. The, the you know, that mm-hmm. he wants to be his, his little signature. Until now, I wasn't entirely sure where that came from. So I love it even more now. Now I want to clarify. Do you know that for sure? Or you're just assuming? I'm assuming. I haven't, yeah. I haven't researched it, but it's such a, you know... A point of reference in Fantastic Mr. Fox, and he uses it there the way she does here. So, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to check into that. But even if it's not, um, if it's just a you know a, a coincidence, I love it. And I want you to look at me as another apple, Professor Potts. Just another apple. Not uncommon in a lot of these classic Hollywood films to have moments like the one we get fairly early on, where we're introduced to Sugar Puss and she's performing and they find an excuse to work in someone who's really popular in music at the time. Here it's Gene Krupa. But Josh, I saw this movie 24 hours ago and I've been singing Drum Boogie ever since. Drum Boogie, Drum Boogie. Drum Boogie! The cat's a killer dealer. Drum Boogie, Drum Boogie. The Drum Boogie Boogie. Come on, knock yourself out. I love that performance. I love Krupa and his band. I love the second performance when they revisit it, and he's doing it with the matches and yeah. the matchbook on the table. One, two, three. I thought that was inspired. I really genuinely do love that performance. And I want to go back to something real quick about the script and what 
Wilder and Brackett managed to do beyond the great lines. And it's full of so many great lines. But I talked about the dramatic heft a little bit and some of those through lines. There's something to say for a movie that really is not just a series of those lines and a series of those moments, but there's something that it's rooted in that is, here's something almost Shakespearean about it, whether or not you can overcome your nature. And you've got in Cooper someone who is this scholar and who is very set in his ways, and he talks about this explicitly. That's not only who he is or who he has always been, but it's as if he believes he is on a certain path that he can't waver from, and she's causing him to waver. Similarly, she's a self-described tramp. She comes from a completely different world, born into completely different circumstances. And can you defy your nature and change and become someone else? That's something that Wilder and Brackett explore here really well. And then the whole conceit itself of language and the slang fits right into that. It's refinement versus slang being more vulgar and whether or not you're going to give in to your heart and your instincts or you're going to follow your head here. That's something that Wilder and Brackett, again, understand about fundamentals, I think, of storytelling and script writing that elevate ball of fire. And I want to give you one more moment or line that I think helps prove their genius, even though I can't totally confirm that this was the intent. And I also need to rewatch it to even make sure that I'm thinking of the right character, but I swear it's true. Remember near the end when they have the gangsters descend on their brownstone and they walk in with their Tommy guns or whatever. And one of the professors says, St. Valentine's Day. And he's mm -hmm. referring to the St. Valentine's Day massacre as this historical event, a reference point. Oh, no, this is going to happen to us. I'm pretty sure it's the same professor who earlier is chastised by Mrs. Bragg because he ate the strawberry jam. And he explains that he was on the S's. He was on the S's and he was studying strawberries, writing about strawberries, and it got the best of him. Again, your heart, your instincts, your gut overriding your head. He has to go consume the jam. And I wonder if even just that line, St. Valentine's Day, is a reference to the fact that he was just studying the S's. Oh, it's possible. You're testing my memory now, again, having watched it a few weeks ago. Um, I remember all those lines. Not sure if it's the same guy, but very well could be. Next up, it is the final film in the marathon, 1944's film noir classic. We've got more Billy Wilder praise coming, at least from me for sure. We're going to talk about Double Indemnity, that's Stanwick with Fred McMurray and Edward G. Robinson. We'll also have our Stanwick Marathon Awards. Again, we need a clever name. If only we had Wilder and Brackett, Josh, to help us out. More info at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which looks ahead to the fall movie season. We're asking, what is your most anticipated movie of the fall? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Don't forget, you can also play movie trivia with us plus special guests and other listeners on september 16 tickets are available at filmspotting.net slash events 
out this weekend in limited release and streaming on Peacock. You can see Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Josh recommends that one. Out in wide release, you can apparently see Spider-Man No Way Home, the more fun stuff version. Yikes. More fun stuff? When we come back, because we are taking next week off for Labor Day, you will get our conversation about Double Indemnity and our Stanwick Marathon Awards and something else. Check our episodes page over at filmspotting.net to keep abreast of the latest show topics. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com. Dot com.